You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. The question is not are you pro-tech or are you anti-tech? The question is what tech designed for what purposes working in whose interest? I'm Jill Bennett, Director of The Big Anxiety, and I'm very pleased to be here to welcome Johan Hari, whose talk as part of The Big Anxiety program is presented by the Wheeler Centre in partnership with RMIT Culture, with readings providing online sales. This event is taking place on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge their elders, past and present, and pay respects to all First Nations people. The Big Anxiety in Nam, Melbourne, is a festival that looks to culture and the arts to reframe mental health. To do that, we focus primarily on lived experience. Best-selling writer and journalist Johan Hari is known the world over for his hugely successful book, Lost Connections. In that book, Johan is guided by his own lived experience of depression and its treatment, which leads him to challenge the theory that was, until recently, quite widely accepted, that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. Taking a more expansive view of lived experience and of what actually works to improve mental health, Lost Connections concluded that almost everything we've been told about depression and anxiety is wrong. In his latest book, Stolen Focus, Johan turns to the problem of attention, asking why it's so hard for us to pay attention and to think deeply. Marshalling the available evidence, he again concludes that our failure in this respect may not in fact be down to personal factors or brain malfunction, but to powerful external social forces. Our focus, he says, has been stolen and we need to get it back. To tell us how to do this, I'm delighted to welcome Johan Hari. Hello, internet people. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. I have this slightly weird um, thing that happens to me whenever I speak in Australia, and it makes me feel a bit weirdly nervous, which is um, because the first time I ever came to Australia, um, I landed and I was unbelievably like jet lagged and out of it. And I gave a speech like almost immediately. I can't remember if it was that day or like the next morning at the Sydney Opera House. And um, this this really strange thing happened to me. So uh, I went on stage. I was completely out of it. And I said, I, was I thought, oh, I'll warm up. I'll make a joke. So I said, um, I have to say, I've been in Australia for 24 hours and I feel really disappointed. And everyone looked really quite taken aback. And I said, you know, uh, I know all British people say uh, we grew up watching Neighbours and Home and Away. I was raised by my grandmother and we, I grew up obsessively watching Sons and Daughters and The Young Doctors. And for uh, any younger people watching who don't know about those works of genius, they were like um, Australian soap operas. And I said, you know, I'm really disappointed because that was my mental picture of Australia. And I've been here for 24 hours and no one has kidnapped me and replaced me with an identical twin I never knew existed yet. And it wasn't a very good joke. Uh, almost no one laughed, just like you didn't laugh. And then I said, um, is, so Reg Grundy is the guy who made those. He also made Neighbours, uh, rest in peace. And uh, I said, is Reg Grundy still alive? 
And someone in the audience shouted out, yeah. And I said, well, God should strike him dead for how he's misrepresented Australia to the world, right? And again, no one laughed. So I sort of awkwardly moved on. Anyway, not very long afterwards, I turned on the television and Reg Grundy had died. So I now feel like I have the power whenever I speak to Australians to just strike random Australians dead if I call on God to do it. Um, which means I am tempted to ask you, is Tony Abbott still alive? But uh, I won't do it. I will not use my evil and, and malign powers. Uh, I'm going to talk to you instead about the enormous crisis we're all facing in focusing and paying attention. The average office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. I said that to an audience recently, and someone said to me, how do they get a whole three minutes? Uh, for every one child who's been identified with serious attention, who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. And I started to investigate this for kind of quite a personal reason. It was partly because I could feel my own ability to pay attention was getting worse. It felt like with each year that passed, things that require deep focus that are so important to me, like reading books, having proper long conversations, watching films, were getting more and more like, kind of like running up a down escalator, if you know what I mean. Like I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. But to be honest, I was quite embarrassed about it. I thought, oh, this is just a weakness in me. I didn't really want to investigate it. And there was a moment when I sort of realized I had to. So I've got a godson. Um, and when he was nine, he developed this brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis Presley. And it was incredibly cute because he seemed to genuinely not know that impersonating Elvis had become a kind of cheesy cliche. Uh, I think he was the last person in the history of the world to do an entirely sincere impression of Elvis. And every night when I tucked him in, he would get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life over and over again. And one night, obviously I tried to skip over the, the bit where Elvis, you know, shits himself to death on the toilet. And one night I mentioned, while I was telling the story, I mentioned Graceland where Elvis lived. And he looked at me and he said to me, Johan, well, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I said, sure, the way you do with nine-year-olds, knowing next week it'll be Legoland or Lapland or whatever. And he looked at me really intensely and he said, no, do you swear one day you're going to take me to Graceland? And I said, I absolutely promise. And I didn't think of that moment again for 10 years until so many things had gone wrong. Um, he dropped out of school when he was 15. And by the time he was 19, this will sound like an exaggeration, it's not. He spent almost literally all his waking hours alternating between his iPad and his iPhone and his laptop. And his life was just this kind of blur of WhatsApp, YouTube, porn. And, and it really felt like he was kind of almost whirring at the speed of Snapchat, where, where nothing still or serious could touch him. And one day we were sitting on my sofa in London and all day I was trying to get a conversation going with him and I just couldn't. And he's a really intelligent, nice person. And he, I just couldn't get a conversation going with him. And to be honest with you, I wasn't that much better. I was staring at my own devices. And I, as we were sitting there and I, was, I could feel my frustration building, I suddenly remembered this moment all these years before and I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. 
And he looked at me completely blankly. He didn't even remember this thing that had happened all these years before. And I reminded him, and I said, you know what? Let's break this numbing routine. Let's go all over the South. Let's go on a big, big road trip. But you've got to promise me one thing, which is that if we go, you'll leave your phone in the hotel during the day because there's no point going if you're just going to stare at your phone the whole time. And he really took a moment to think about it. And I could see that it appealed to him. He wasn't liking this way of being. And he said, you know what? I promise I'll do that. Let's do it. And I think it was literally two weeks or three weeks later, we took off from, from London, from Heathrow to New Orleans, where we went first. And about two weeks after that, we arrived at the gates of Graceland. And when you get to Graceland, this is even before COVID, um, there's no one to show you around anymore. What happens is they hand you an iPad and you put in earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, you know, go left, go right. Every room you're in, the narrator tells you a story about that room. And, um, and in every room, there's, a, there's an image of that room on the iPad in front of you, a picture of it. So what happens, and it's really weird when you see it, is everyone walks around Graceland staring at their iPad, right? They're, they're kind of walking around. And I'm kind of looking at them. And they sort of, people occasionally look up, but they look up to take out their phone, take a selfie and then put that screen away and go back to the other screen. And it's sort of slightly pissing me off, you know, a bit like, oh, we traveled thousands of miles. We're the only people who are actually looking at the place we traveled to. Um, and then we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favorite room in Graceland. And I'll never forget it. There's a Canadian couple next to us, a middle-aged, maybe about 50. And the man turned to his wife and he said, Honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And, and I laughed out loud. I thought he was kidding. And I turned and looked, and him and his wife were just swiping back and forth. And I, I leaned over and I said, but hey, sir, there's a, an old-fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head because you realize... We're in the jungle room. You, you don't have to look at it on the internet. We're, we're literally there. And they looked at me like I was completely insane and, and, and backed out the room. And I turned to my godson to laugh about it. And he was standing in the corner staring at Snapchat. Because from the moment we landed, he could not stop. He couldn't stop. And I went up to him. And I did that thing that's never a good idea with teenagers. I tried to grab the phone out of his hands. And I said to him, I know you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not present at the events of your own existence. You're not showing up at your own life. And he stormed off, understandably. And so I wandered around Memphis on my own that day. And then that night, I found him at the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying up the street. And he was sitting by the big guitar-shaped swimming pool looking at his phone. And I went and sat down next to him. And I apologized for getting so angry. And he didn't look up, but he said, I know something's really wrong here, and I don't know what it is. And I realized that we had, we had gone away in order to get away from this problem of not being able to focus, but there was, it seemed like there was nowhere to escape to because that problem was everywhere all around us. It seemed to be taking over all the people we saw. And that's when I realized, you know, I can't put this off any longer. <clears throat> So 
I used my training in the social sciences at Cambridge University to go on a big journey all over the world, from here in Melbourne to Miami to Moscow, not just to cities that begin with the letter M. And I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts in the world on attention and focus who studied different aspects of it. And what I learned from interviewing them, from digging very deeply into their work, is that there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make your attention worse. Some of them are in our technology. Most of them are actually beyond our technology, things that I'd never thought about. I'm going to talk about some of them. Um, and loads of those factors that can harm your attention and focus have been hugely increasing in recent years. So if you're struggling to focus, if you're struggling to pay attention, if your child is struggling to focus and pay attention, the most important thing to know is it is not your fault. It's not their fault. You're not broken. They're not broken. This is happening to almost all of us. My book is called Stolen Focus because our focus is being stolen from us by some very big forces. But once we understand what those forces are, we can begin to understand what's happening to us. And most importantly, we can begin to get our attention and focus back. But at the very start of this journey, before I'd done all that scientific investigation, you know, I had a very simple story in my head about what had gone wrong, right? I thought, well, you're weak. You're not strong enough. Why can't you resist this? There's something wrong with me. And I also thought, well, someone invented the smartphone and that screwed me over. So because these were the two stories that I had in my head, my initial... Uh, response was, okay, well, if the problem is I don't have enough willpower and the phone was invented, I'm going to use my willpower to separate myself from the phone. So I was in this lucky position. One of my books, Chasing the Scream, got made into a big Hollywood film called The United States versus Billie Holiday. So I had a load of money, which I'd never had before. So I was like, ah, I'm not going to sit here staring at my phone when I could be doing something else. So I booked a little uh, room in a beach house in a place called Provincetown in Cape Cod. And I went away for three months. I went there with no smartphone and no laptop that could get online. I left them in Boston and I went, got a ferry across the water. I remember on that ferry thinking, God, I remember the very first time I ever saw a mobile phone. I was on the top deck of a bus in London. I was 13 and I saw someone speaking on a, on a mobile phone that in my memory is like the size of a cow. And I remember him talking on the phone and everyone turning around and staring at him. And he carried on talking and someone said to him, someone broke the rule in the, the, one of the deepest rules in British public life is that you never acknowledge strangers on public transport. But a guy turned around and said, said to the guy on the phone, mate, and he said, yeah, and he said, you're a wanker, which is like exactly how we all reacted to the arrival of mobile phones as if they were kind of this bizarre, surreal act of madness, right? And I remember thinking, God, if you had told me then when I was 13 and I saw this weird device whatever it is, uh, what was I then? I was 38, so, you know, 25 years later, a bit more, uh, you're <laughs> you'll be fleeing on a boat from this invention. I would have thought you were completely insane. But I arrived in Provincetown, and, you know, I had been going so fast for so long, that first week was almost, I felt almost stoned. It's like this kind of haze of decompression. And then... I mean, lots of things happened to me in Provincetown. If people don't know Provincetown. It's, um, it's a little kind of beach town. Uh, it, it, it's a kind of famously a kind of gay beach town. It, um, it wasn't always that, but it's, uh, it's the kind of place where more than one person makes a full-time living by dressing as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid, and singing songs about cunnilingus. Um, 
and the two people who are full-time Ursulas hate each other, but that's another story. Uh, so it's a great place. Um, um, the thing that most amazed me, you know, I was 38 when I went. I thought maybe my attention's getting worse. This is the other story I had in my head. Maybe my attention's getting worse because I'm getting older. Within a month, my attention went back to being as good as it had been when I was 17. Right? I could read all day. I later realized there were actually lots of other changes that happened to me in Provincetown, not related to the tech, which I'll get to, that had so boosted my attention. I was amazed by how much came back. And I had lots of ups and downs in Provincetown. I write about them in Stolen Focus. But, but the biggest lesson was, oh, actually, you've not permanently degenerated, right? This can, this can come back. And I remember my last day, I was there for three months. I remember my last day in Provincetown, um, going out to, there's a, there's a point beyond, there's a lighthouse in Provincetown, and a point right on the edge of Provincetown where you can sort of sit and look back over the whole of Provincetown. And I'm looking at this place where I'd spent the whole of my, my summer and thinking, God, this has been so amazing. I've been able to read really long books, I've been able to have really long conversations, make proper bonds with people again. Why would I go back to the way I lived before, right? I'm gonna really restrain myself from now on. And the next day I got the boat back to Boston. I remember even getting my phone back, like the, the Apple font was seeming really odd to me when I got it back. And within two months I was 80% back where I'd been and I felt really ashamed and kind of sunken. Um, I thought, God, there, there really is something wrong with me because I had this taste of something better. And I only began to think about it differently when I went to Moscow to interview an amazing man named Dr. James Williams, who used to be at the heart of Google, was horrified by what they were doing, quit, and became, I would argue, the leading philosopher of attention in the world. He, he lives in Moscow, and they've actually left now, but his, for obvious reasons, but his wife was, um, worked for the World Health Organization, which is why he was there. And I remember, you know, it was fascinating when you meet people, I, I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley as well, meeting people who've been at the heart of designing the world in which we now live. And it's so interesting how, how ashamed so many of them are. You know, Dr. Williams was once speaking to a, uh, a tech conference in Silicon Valley where the audience were literally the people designing the stuff you and your kids are using today. And he said to them, if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world that we've created, please put up your hand. And not one person put up their hand. It was a key moment for him. And he said to me, when we sat together in his apartment in Moscow, look, Johan, the key mistake you've made is by thinking that the solution is only for you individually to do something, some heroic act of willpower, is it's like thinking the solution to air pollution is for you personally to wear a gas mask, right? Now, don't get me wrong, if I lived in Beijing, I'd wear a gas mask. I'm not against a uh, pollution mask. I'm not against pollution masks. But they're not the solution to air pollution. The solution to air pollution is to deal with the air pollution at source. In the same way, he said, we need to deal with these factors at their source, right? Not just put all the job of dealing with them onto us. It took me a long time to really understand what he meant and to tease it out. So I'm going to give you some examples of um, some of the causes, the 12 causes that I write about in Stolen Focus, and then think about the different ways we can respond to them. So I'll give you um, one that um, was very striking to me. 
I went to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, just across the water from Provincetown, in fact, and interviewed an amazing man named Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you've got to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not changed significantly in 30,000 years. It ain't going to change on any time scale. Any of us are going to see, you can only think about one or two things at a time. But what's happened is we've fallen for kind of mass delusion. The average teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time, and the rest of us are not that far behind. So what happens is scientists like Professor Miller and other scientists all over the world get people into labs, not just younger people, older people too, and they get them to think they're doing more than one thing at a time. And when they do that, they always discover the same thing. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very rapidly between tasks. You're like, wait, what did you just ask me? What's that message on WhatsApp? What does it say on the TV there? Oh, wait, what's this message on, what's this text message? Sorry, what did you ask me again? We're constantly juggling. And it turns out that juggling comes with a really big cost. The technical term for it is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes, you'll remember less of what you do, you'll be much less creative. And I remember when I first heard that thinking, okay, I get that, but that's a small effect, right? It's a kind of little drain. In fact, the evidence shows it's a really big blow to our intellectual and cognitive capacities. I'll give you an example of a small study that's backed by a wider body of evidence. Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, got a scientist in to study their workforce. And he split the workers into two groups, a small group of workers. And the first group was told, just get on with your task, whatever it is, and you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, get on with your task, whatever it is, but at the same time, you're gonna to have to answer a heavy load of email and phone calls. So pretty much how most of us live. And then at the end, the scientist, Dr. Glenn Wilson, tested the IQ of both groups. He found the group that had not been interrupted scored 10 IQ points higher than the group that had been interrupted. To give you a sense of how big that effect is, if you or me, if we sat down now and we smoked a fat spliff together and got stoned, our IQs would go down in the short term by five points. So at least in the short term, being chronically interrupted is twice as bad for your intelligence as getting stoned. You'd be better off sitting at your desk, doing one thing at a time and smoking a spliff than you would sitting at your desk and doing what most of us do, not getting stoned and being constantly interrupted. Now, in case anyone's getting the wrong idea, obviously you'd be better off neither getting interrupted nor getting stoned. But you know, uh, a different scientist, Professor Michael Posner, discovered if you're interrupted, it takes you on average 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus you had before you were interrupted. But most of us never get 23 minutes without being interrupted. This is why Professor Miller said to me, we are living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of all these interruptions. Okay, let me give you another few, few other examples of other factors that are playing out for us. Um, we sleep less than any group of humans before us. Um, we sleep 20% less than people did a century ago. Children sleep 85 minutes less than they did in the 1940s. And there's a, a kind of a broad scientific, uh, it's not a complete unanimity, but there's broad scientific agreement that we are sleeping a lot less. So I spent a lot of time looking at the science of sleep. I went to Harvard Medical School to interview Dr. Charles Seisler, 
who's the leading expert on sleep in the world, arguably, certainly one of the top two or three. He's advised everyone from the Boston Red Sox to the US Secret Service on sleep. He's made a whole series of breakthroughs on this. And he said to me, even if nothing else had changed, except that we sleep so much less, that alone would be causing a really big attention crisis. You know, if you stay awake for 19 hours, which doesn't sound like very much to me, I'm sure it doesn't to you, your attention suffers as much as if you got legally drunk. And there's lots of, there's a debate about why sleep is so important for attention, but one of the people who really helped me to understand this is Professor Roxanne Prashad, brilliant scientist who's in Minneapolis, she, the university there, and she explained to me, uh, it's the University of St. Paul, Minneapolis, she explained to me, um, the whole time you're awake, so for you now, for me, although I'm jet lagged, so maybe not fully awake, um, your brain is constantly generating something called metabolic waste, right? It's what she calls brain cell poop. It's building up throughout the day. And when you go to sleep, a watery fluid washes through your brain, your cerebral spinal fluid channels open, and that, that metabolic waste, that brain cell poop is carried out of your brain, down into your uh, kidneys, and eventually out of your body. If you don't get eight hours sleep a night, your brain doesn't get the chance to clean itself fully. So when you wake up, you, you know that feeling when you're tired and you feel clogged up? That, that's not a metaphor. You are literally clogged up. Now, there was, uh, we know people who get less sleep, that, that metabolic waste builds up so much over time, you're significantly more likely to develop dementia later in life. But it harms your attention in a much more short-term way. This is why we know there's, there's lots of evidence about drowsy driving, right? It's why it's so dangerous to drive when you're tired because your attention is impaired. But we're all, not all, but most of us are living at that uh, at a level of impairment because of this lack of sleep. Okay, let's think about another example, one that I had frankly never really thought about in relation to uh, my, own in a, my, my own attention, which is food and the way we eat. And this is, um, this is a very personal subject for me. Uh, as you can probably tell from my chins, it's something I slightly struggle with and I, I had a real low point in my life in 2009. Um, I lived in Brick Lane in, in East London. And um, it, was, it was lunchtime on Christmas Eve 2009. It makes it even sadder. This is a Christmas story. And I went to my local KFC and I gave my standard order. And the guy behind the counter, um, Nick was his name, he said, um, oh, Johan, I'm really glad you're here. Wait a minute. I was like, right. And he went off behind where they fry the chicken and everything. And he came back with the other two members of staff and a massive Christmas card in which they'd written to our best customer. And my heart completely sank. One of the reasons was because I thought, this isn't even the fried chicken shop I come to the most. Like, it was a bad, bad sign. But So, I don't say this with any sense of superiority. Um, there's, a, there's this big new movement, a really fascinating, one of the most interesting intellectual developments in the world at the moment, I think, a movement called nutritional psychiatry, which is studying how the ways we eat affect the ways we think and feel and affect our minds. And so I interviewed lots of these nutritional psychiatrists, people like Dr. Umadevi Naidu, um, some brilliant people. And I learned from them that there's scientific evidence that the way we eat profoundly affects our ability to focus and pay attention. I'll give you some examples of how. Um, so imagine that you eat in the mornings, the standard kind of British, Australian, American breakfast. You have a sugary cereal, or you have, you know, a toasted white bread with butter on it, right? What that does is it releases a huge amount of energy really quickly in your brain in a kind of zhwoom, right? And it feels great. You're like, I've woken up. I'm ready for the day, right? But it's released so much energy so fast that 
an hour and a half later, you'll be at your desk, your kid will be at their school desk, and you'll get an energy crash. And then you get something called brain fog, where you just can't think very clearly until you've had a load of caffeine or a sugary carby treat, right? The way we eat, as Dale Pinnock, one of the leading nutritionists in Europe, said to me, puts us on a roller coaster of energy spikes and energy crashes throughout the day with these patches of brain fog, right? The way he put it is it's like we're putting rocket fuel into a mini, you know, those British cars from the 70s. It'll go really fast for five minutes and then it'll just conk out, right? We're doing that to our brains. Whereas if, for example, you have for breakfast, uh, I don't know, oatmeal with blueberries, that releases energy much more steadily throughout the day. There's lots of other ways in which the way we eat is affecting our, our attention. For your brain to function fully, there's all sorts of nutrients that you need. Um, Omega-3s are a famous example that we're really lacking in. You get them from fresh fish, sardines. Um, and we're really lacking a lot of those nutrients. And unfortunately, trying to make it up with supplements just doesn't work because your body doesn't absorb nutrients from supplements in the way it absorbs them from actual food. Um, actually, one of the most disturbing elements for me of the way we eat and how it's affecting attention is that our diet is not just lacking things that we need in order for our brains to fully function. Our diets very often are containing chemicals that act on our brains like drugs. I'll give you an example, because you're all Australian, uh, or most of you. Um, buy a pack of M&Ms here. Next, next time you're gonna go to Europe, buy a pack of M&Ms here. Take it to Europe, buy a pack of M&Ms there, and open them next to each other, and you'll see what I'm describing. I'll get to why in a minute. So in 2007 in Southampton, the British city of Southampton, there was a study carried out by scientists there. What they did is they split, they, they got 198 children uh, and they split them into two groups. And the first group was just given water and the second group was given water laced with loads of preservatives and chemicals that are in loads of the food we eat, like M&Ms. And then the kids were monitored. The kids who were given the preservatives were significantly more likely to become manic, to act up, to display these things we associate with attention problems. Um, in the wake of that, a lot of those um, preservatives and chemicals were banned in the European Union, which uh, Britain was part of then before we sadly went mad. Um, those, they have not been banned in the United States and Australia. So take those M&Ms, you'll see the M&Ms are much brighter here in Australia. Um, because they've got those, those, those kind of artificial colorings. Um, it's nice to have bright M&Ms. It's also nice to be able to think clearly and pay attention. So you can see how a lot of these factors, I had never even thought about the, how the ways I eat affect my ability to focus and pay attention. But obviously I wanna focus with the rest of the time I've got on um, one of the factors, the factor that when I started out on this journey, I thought was the, the factor, which is our technology. And actually I think the story here is potentially more encouraging than we might think. So when I went to Silicon Valley, when I interviewed all these people who designed, as I say, key aspects of the world in which we live, um, it was really sobering, but they kept explaining something to me. It took me a long time to grasp it. So what they told me was, Anyone watching now, please don't, for all the multitasking reasons I told you about before, but if you opened your phone now, and you open TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or any of the big social media apps, mainstream social media apps, those apps begin to make money out of you immediately in two ways. The first way is really obvious. You start to see ads. Okay, none of you need me to explain that. The second way is much more important. Everything you do on these apps is scanned and sorted by their artificial intelligence algorithms 
to figure out the weaknesses in your attention, to figure out what is it that keeps you scrolling, right? So different people, it's different things. For you, it might be cat videos. For me, it would be, you know, uh, a mixture of shirtless men and Noam Chomsky quotes, but whatever it might be for you, it's figuring out the weaknesses in your attention and it's feeding them. And it's doing that for a very simple reason, incredibly basic reason, one that was so basic, I actually almost couldn't believe this was the only thing going on. Every time you pick up your phone and open one of these apps, those companies start to make money. The longer you scroll, the more money they make. Every time your kids pick up the phone and start to scroll, those companies start making money. The longer your kid scrolls, the more money they make. So all of this AI, all of these algorithms, all of this incredible genius in Silicon Valley is geared towards one thing and one thing only, figuring out how do we get you to pick up your phone as often as possible and scroll as long as possible. That's it. Just like the head of KFC, all he cares about is, did you go to KFC today? And if you did, how big is the bucket you bought? The answer in my case, large. Uh, that's all he cares about, right? He might, as an individual, private individual care about lots of things, but the company cares about that thing and that thing only. All of these social media apps, that is all they care about, right? Because that is their business model. Figure out the weaknesses in your attention, hack them, sell your attention to the highest bidder so you see more and more ads and they make more money. That's it. And I remember people who've been at the heart of the machine kept telling me this, and I was sort of naively going, no, it can't quite be just that. It must be, what about this, what about that? And the way they talked to me, it was a bit like, I apologize for a vulgar comparison, but I realized I, was, I felt a bit like I was a kind of a maiden aunt in an 1850s Jane, you know, a kind of Jane Austen, Jane Austen was a bit before the 1850s, but a, a, a 19th century kind of novel where who just learned about the existence of fingering or something. She's like, what, what, what do they do? You know, like, like I was like almost comically naive. Um, but the thing that's important about this is we can have all the technology we currently have and not have it designed to hack and invade our attention. And um, it's not actually primarily the tech that is screwing with our attention. It's the way the tech is currently designed. So the way big tech want us to think about this debate is they want it to be, are you pro-tech or are you anti-tech? And when you hear that, you're like, well, I'm not gonna give up my laptop. Even I couldn't, after the joy of Provincetown, I couldn't do it, right? I'm not gonna join the Amish. No disrespect to any Amish people who are watching. You are cheating if you are. Um, if I'm not gonna give up the tech, I guess I must be pro-tech. That's how they want us to think about it. That's not the debate. We're all pro-tech, right? We all want to have technology. Technology enriches our lives in all sorts of ways. The question is not, are you pro-tech or are you anti-tech? The question is, what tech designed for what purposes working in whose interests? We want tech that works for us, not tech that works against us. We want tech that heals our attention, not tech designed to harm our and, and hack our attention. And the technology exists to do that, right? My friends in Silicon Valley could design that in a week, the key is you need to change the incentives to do that, right? So at the moment, all the incentives for these companies are find better and more sophisticated ways to, do, to hack and invade your attention, and they are unbelievably good at it. As everyone watching has noticed, just look at any child anywhere in our society, they're really good at it. So what we've got to do is change the incentives for those companies, which seemed very daunting when I, I, I first learned about it, but there is an example, a great and heroic example in the history of Australia that I think can help us to see how we might do that. So a lot of people, I'm, I'm 43, a lot of people my age and a little bit younger than me will remember, it used to be that the standard form of petrol in Australia 
and indeed across the world, was leaded petrol, right? Um, I remember my mum putting it in a red mini. And a little bit before my time, people used to paint their homes with leaded paint. And it was discovered that exposure to lead really harms people's brains, and in particular, really harms people's ability to focus and pay attention. An amazing uh, scientist called Dr. Alice Hamilton actually discovered that in the 1920s, as she was sort of mansplained out of the room by the lead industry, and they unleashed all this lead on us, and it profoundly harmed our attention. So by the time we got to the 1970s, that thing that Alice Hamilton had been, Dr. Hamilton had been warning about in the 1920s was completely undeniable, that lead was having a disastrous effect on children's ability to focus. So what happened was a group of ordinary Australian mums, they were overwhelmingly mothers, what we used to call housewives, um, banded together and said, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing these companies to screw up our kids' brains for the sake of more profit? This is crazy. And it's important to notice what those mothers didn't say. They didn't say, so let's ban all paint. Let's ban all petrol, right? That would be ridiculous. Just like we're, no one on this side of the debate is saying, let's get rid of technology. What they said is, let's deal with the specific aspects of the paint and the petrol that are harming our children's brains. So these mothers campaigned for the banning of lead in paint and petrol. And it followed the classic pattern of what Gandhi said always happens with social movements. First, they ignored them. Then they laughed at them. Then they fought them. Then they won. These mothers were ridiculed, but they fought like hell for their children, and they prevailed. As a result, everyone knows we don't have leaded petrol anymore. We don't have leaded paint. As a result, the Center for Disease Control has calculated the average child is three to five IQ points higher than they would have been had we never banned lead. Right? Now, to me, that's a really important example. Um, for all of the factors that are harming our attention that I write about in Stolen Focus, there are two levels at which we've got to respond. I think of them as defense and offense, right? There are loads of things we can do at an individual level to defend ourselves and our children from these factors that are invading our attention. I'll give you an example of one. I go through loads in the book. Um, I've got something called a K-safe. I'm going to sound like a QVC person now, but I don't make any money from this. Um, K-safe, you can look it up. It's a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid, you turn the dial at the top, and it will lock your phone away for anything between five minutes and a whole day. I won't sit down to watch a film with my partner unless we both put our phones in the phone jail. I won't have my friends around for dinner unless everyone agrees to imprison their phone. And people are really anxious at first, right? And I always go to them, you're not Joe Biden. It's okay. You don't have to give orders. The world can be without you for an hour and a half, right? But you can see why they're anxious, and I understand it, and I felt it myself at first. But I say to them, you know, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is, that thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of sustained focus and attention. And when your ability to focus breaks down, your ability to solve your problems breaks down, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down. And when you get your attention back, you start to feel competent again. It's really worth making an investment in. So there's lots of things, hang on a second. There's lots of things at an individual level that we need to do. But I wanna be really honest with people because I don't think most books about attention are being honest with people. I'm passionately in favor of these individual changes. They will really help. But on their own, they're not gonna solve the problem because at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day and then leaning forward and going, you know what, mate, uh, you might want to learn how to meditate, then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you want to go, well, screw you. 
I'll learn to meditate, that's really valuable, but you need to stop pouring this damaging powder on me. You know, as my friend Tristan Harris, who'd also been at the heart of the Silicon Valley machine and broke away and became uh, an incredible dissident against it, said to me, you could try having self-control, but every time you do, there are 10,000 engineers on the other side of the screen trying to undermine your self-control. We need to stop those engineers from doing what they're doing. And there are ways we can do that. So one of the ways I was taught about it was from a man named Aza Raskin, who designed a key part of how most websites work. And um, his dad, Jeff Raskin, invented the Apple Macintosh for Steve Jobs. And, and Aza said to me, if you want to know what the equivalent of the lead in the lead paint is, it's very simple. You've got to ban the current business model for social media. It sounded very big when I first heard it. People kept saying this to me in Silicon Valley. I was like, well, what, do you, what do you mean? And he said, just, just say that a business model based on surveilling people in order to figure out the weaknesses in their attention, hack them, and keep them scrolling, it's just immoral. It's like lead in lead paint. We won't allow it. Ban it. And I said to him, okay, but let's imagine we do that. The day after we ban it, if I open Facebook, what would happen? Would it just say, sorry, everyone, we've gone fishing? He said, of course not. What would happen is they would have to move to a different business model. And everyone watching has an experience of the two different business models. Maybe there's other ones people haven't thought of, but there's two very obvious ones. The first one is subscription. Okay, we all know how Netflix works. You pay a certain amount. In return, you get access. The key thing there is it completely flips the incentives. At the moment, you are not the customer for any of the social media companies. You are the product they sell to the real customer who's the advertiser, right? So all of it is about hacking and invading your attention to marketize it and sell it, right? Suddenly, in a subscription model, you're the customer. Suddenly, they're not going, oh, how do we hack and invade Bob's attention? Suddenly, they're going, hmm, what does Bob want? Turns out, Bob wants to actually meet up with his friends, not jealously scroll through their photos. Okay, let's design our app to always tell him when his friends are nearby and want to meet up. Let's design the whole app to get people to physically meet up, right? Technology exists to do that right now. It would massively improve our mental health. The incentives aren't there to do it right now, but we can change the incentives. Or think about another option, another business model that every, literally everyone watching has experience of. So before we had sewers, we had shit in the streets, we got cholera, so we all paid to build the sewers together, and we all own the sewers, right? You own the sewers in Melbourne, I own the sewers in London, right? Um, it might be that, like, we want to own the sewage pipes together, we want to own the information pipes together, because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our attention, and I would argue our politics, but that's something I go into a bit more in the book, because it's not just our individual attention that's being destroyed, it's our collective attention. But whichever of these alternative business models we choose, all the incentives change. Now, the key thing to understand about this is that this is more fixable than you think. If this was a problem just with technology, we'd be screwed, right? But this is a narrower problem than that when it comes to tech. And, you know, Dr. Dr. Williams, who I mentioned before, he said to me, you know, um, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone said, guys, shall we put a handle on this thing? The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days, right? We can fix this stuff. We can remember times before many of these problems. We can put these things right. But to do that, we've got to change the story we're telling. We need to stop blaming ourselves. We need to stop blaming our children. And we need to start taking on the forces that have, in fact, stolen our attention and focus. So it requires 
us to stop blaming ourselves and to stop just asking for little individual tweaks, right? We are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can take them back if we're willing to fight for them. Thanks very much, everyone. Cheers. This was Johan Hari with Why You Can't Pay Attention for the Big Anxiety with introduction by Jill Bennett. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.